Hey everyone, Jonathan here. Just a quick note, we kind of assume a degree of familiarity with the films that we discuss on the show, so that means there may be spoilers. Now we definitely don't want to ruin these movies for you, so if that concerns you, this may be a good time to catch up on certain titles you've missed, and maybe see some things you wouldn't normally have made a point to see, and then you can come back and listen to the podcast. Just wanted to give you a fair warning. And with that out of the way, let's get on with the show. Welcome to the worst part of my favorite movie, the podcast that dares to suggest that just because we love something, that doesn't mean it's perfect. Thank you for listening. My name is Jonathan Foster. I'm your host. My co-host, Trip Von Weeks, unfortunately can't be with us here today. It's actually pretty weird. It's kind of a, a whole thing. He, he texted me and said he was on his way to the recording, and then the next thing he knew, he was in a line of cars outside of a, a, a baseball field in Iowa. I'm not sure what that's all about. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but but Tripp did say we could give him a call a little later in the show when it comes time for his film history segment. So that's the plan. Our engineer has told me we can patch him in. So, you know, no harm, no foul. But joining me on the show today is a great cinematographer whose work on films as diverse as Little Fish, Horse Girl, and Morse from America has distinguished him as one of the top cinematographers of his generation. Uh, he's also worked on the acclaimed HBO anthology series Room 104, but as you'll hear from our conversation today, he concerns himself with so much more than what he sees through the eyepiece of a camera. It's a great treat to be speaking with him today. Please welcome to the show, Sean McAway. Thanks for being here, Sean. Thanks a lot, Jonathan. Appreciate it. So we're talking about Zodiac today, your favorite David Fincher movie, but when we were still settling on a title to discuss, you said that one thing that might be a potential drawback for Zodiac was that you have zero recollection of seeing it for the first time and zero nostalgia for it, which is totally fine and understandable. But it did make me wonder, uh, what is the expiration date for your nostalgia? How rigidly or loosely defined are your nostalgic years? Well, that's interesting. Uh, I, I mean, it's it's definitely a long... I have zero nostalgia for anything in the 21st century, uh, for sure. I think maybe going to college actually uh, has a lot to do with it. I think uh, high school years, middle school years... I think I really respond to that when it comes to nostalgia. I mean, in, from a movie standpoint, you know, the early '90s, late '80s, I think was probably my my biggest time for, for for nostalgia. So I think there is definitely a cutoff point there. Yeah, mine are very generally the '90s, but if I'm being super specific about it, I'd say 1993 and 1994, and that's when I was 12 and 13. You mentioned kind of the early '90s as well, late '80s. Do you think that just holds true for everyone? Like. For somebody who is 12 or 13 now, are they going to look back in 30 years and say, wow, I have a lot of nostalgia for Elvis and Top Gun Maverick and the Batman? Uh, because, look, this is a, a very snotty and arrogant thing for me to say, but I feel like my nostalgia is better than what their nostalgia will be. And that's not a judgment call on the movies themselves. I'm just kind of talking about the depth of nostalgia here. My theory is that so much of this kind of thing is based on an idealized set of circumstances. Um, so as you get older and, you know, the demands of adulthood confront you, there's, there's obviously more on your mind than what's playing at your neighborhood movie theater. And that's, that's to be expected. We'll stop being nostalgic for certain things by a certain age. Our brains are more elastic and moldable in the first two decades of our lives. But right now, there's also just so much more competing for everyone's attention, not just adults. Everyone is consuming so much more across multiple platforms and in multiple ways. And it's all just at our fingertips now. So I, I don't think there's anything really special about how we access this stuff anymore. So the impression 
it's allowed to leave on us is so much less because we just move on to the next thing and the next thing and so on. It's as if our collective reservoirs for nostalgia aren't as deep because I think we kind of now prioritize convenience and consumption more than engagement. Uh, we're just not, you know, creating sense memories by scrolling through Netflix like maybe we used to when we would go to the movie theater. What do you what do you think of all that? Yeah, I, I actually agree, uh, uh, definitely agree with that. Uh, my wife and I were just actually just talking the other day about um, nostalgia uh, simply because so many more things are documented for for kids now, like. You know, on, on your cell phones, you're going to have so many more like uh, childhood videos. You're going to have so many more photos, things like that. So like, I, yeah, I, I don't think that people will have as much nostalgia in the future looking back uh, at, to this time because, yeah, so many more, so many more things are, are, are documented. There's so many more ways to get information. Whereas like back in the, in the early 90s and, and the late 80s, you know, you from a movie standpoint, you had to go out and, and seek out a movie. You had to actually open up an actual newspaper or an actual uh, TV guide. And you actually had to like, look for this stuff. And a lot of my nostalgia is actually, it's not necessarily going to the, going to a movie theater. Like my family didn't really go to the movies that much. If it was like a big movie, like Jurassic Park or something, uh, which was hugely influential for me as a kid. But like, um, for me, a lot of the nostalgia actually comes from HBO and it comes from my VCR and it comes from taping things off of HBO. I did that nonstop. I mean, it was multiple movies a day if it was during the summer or something like that. So like actually opening up a newspaper, seeing what was on HBO, getting a blank VHS or re recording over something that I had seen so many times. I didn't want to see it anymore. And like recording something off of like actually seeking out those movies, that content and, and actually like physically like doing something to watch it and actually having to work at watching it. Uh, I think that creates a lot of nostalgia because there wasn't a lot of ways to see things. Yeah, there's that great line uh, in The Worst Person in the World um, where he's talking at the end. He's like, I used to be able to hold culture in my hand. And I remember being in the movie theater and relating to that so much and, and just actually kind of being touched and moved by that sentiment. Uh, is that, it sounds like that holds true for you as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And in fact, that, that whole scene just killed me. Uh, but it's so hard. There's nothing tangible anymore, you know? And, uh, and I think that that has a lot to do with nostalgia, like going back to the conversation that my wife and I had about photos and nostalgia, like holding a photo and seeing yourself as a baby is going is so much different than looking on an iPhone or in the future, whatever, somebody's going to look at photos on and just seeing yourself, you know, like on a screen, it's completely different. And I think that that, that really does kind of, you know, um, inform how much nostalgia you have for a certain time period. Absolutely. So kind of related to the issue of nostalgia, you know, framing it more around movies, this is, this is maybe a more interesting way to think about it. When you hear the phrase, or if you yourself were to say the phrase, they don't make them like they used to. What movies come to mind for you when you say that phrase? There's actually a lot of movie or a lot of genres and a lot of types of movies that I could say that about. Um, anywhere from like comedies to dramas but like one, one thing that kind of sticks out in my mind about like they don't make them like they used to is that sort of and i hate saying like run of the mill because they're kind of not but like those sort of quote-unquote b-movie action you know movies from from the 90s like your executive decisions or your air force ones like you don't really see movie stars in these kind of movies anymore and they're not crafted the same way. I, I have no idea. I, maybe it's because it's digital now or something, but like, and, and, you know, obviously like the, the, the mid-level budget movie is essentially disappeared, but like 
movies like the you know like the siege or or something like that where it was an adult driven action movie or thriller that had actual movie stars in it and uh when i when i hear the phrase like they don't make them like they used to that's one sort of subgenre that that sticks out in my in my mind so zodiac is now 16 years old is that something that would come to mind? i mean do you do you think the caliber of movie that zodiac is being made frequently now or is that just kind of a something that just comes along every so often i was thinking about this actually recently um the only other movie like this that I can think of that that was made re- I, well, first of all, I think only a certain breed of director has the ability to make these kind of movies now. And I think a recent example is The Irishman. Um, you know, it's a long it's a, it's a long movie. It's epic. It has very broad themes. It's not necessarily for everyone. And I think it is much like Zodiac. I think it is a little bit of a, a departure for the um, for Scorsese, um, just in terms of of the themes and 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 things like that. Um, but no, I mean, I think it's very few and far between. And again, it's like, I think you have to be a certain caliber of director in order to get anything like that made, probably even back in 2007. I don't know, but certainly now. There were uh, five years between Panic Room and Zodiac, which up to that point was the longest time between features for David Fincher. And I know you don't necessarily remember seeing Zodiac for the first time, but being a fan of Fincher, I imagine you must have been anticipating the movie a lot. Did you love it immediately? Was it instantly your favorite Fincher movie? Or was that something that you kind of arrived at over time with multiple viewings? Yeah, I mean, like, just the fact that I can't remember seeing it for the first time. So I asked my wife last night, if she remembers, like if we had seen it in the theater, she swears that we saw it in the theater, I, I don't remember it. So I think just the fact that I don't remember the fact that I think I saw it in the theater, but I clearly don't remember seeing it in the theater. Obviously, it did not strike me the first time I saw it. The, the first time I remember seeing it is was actually on Netflix. It must have been like the, the, the following year or something. It was back when, you know, Netflix only did like, like you know, DVDs. And so seeing it then the, the following year is when it really clicked for me, like what Fincher was going for, what the story's going for. And but even then, it wasn't necessarily it didn't it didn't instantly like just rocket to my favorite movie. It was definitely something that happened over time. And I didn't even really get it the first time I saw it. I think I, I, much like a lot of other audience members, had these expectations of going into a serial, a quote unquote serial killer David Fincher movie. And so clearly it didn't, it didn't hit me the first time. The second time I finally got it. But even then it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily like I wouldn't consider it my, one of my favorite movies. And it wasn't until probably the last five years, maybe even after I saw Social Network, which I also love. I started to see David Fincher, I think, in a different way. And that's when I started to revisit Zodiac more and more. And a lot of my favorite films, now that I'm getting older, also have a lot to do with how rewatchable they are. And somehow, despite its length and despite its content and despite its like meandering quality, Zodiac and um, Social Network can like continue to be like my my most watchable uh, Fincher movies. So it, yeah, it took a really long time for it to become like one of my favorite, my, one of my favorite movies. Yeah, I agree. I'm kind of always in the mood to watch Zodiac and the social network. Um, and I only like the movies so much. Like I, I like them both. Um, I think they're both very good movies, but I'm not, you know, you, you I think consider them both masterpieces. Is that correct? That is correct. hundred percent. And I don't, but, but you know, that's neither here nor there. I'm always just kind of like, maybe I should rewatch Zodiac. Uh, so I think that speaks something to it. When I engage with it, I'm always just like, yeah, I guess I only like it this much, but I'm always in the mood to watch it. So I think that says a lot about it. 
It does. Yeah. The fact that you can like, like you can say, Hey, I think I'm in the mood for this and then put it on. And like, even though there's only like a certain level of engagement that you have with the movie, the fact that you're engaged, no matter how many times you see it. And again, despite its length, I think says a lot. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So what are your top three or top five Fincher movies then? I would have to say, so, uh, and this is in order. I would have to say Zodiac, Social Network, and then Seven. I, I feel like that would probably be like, uh, I think a lot of people would probably say that. Um, maybe not in that order, but I think those would be a lot of people's top three. Yeah, I know Gone Girl recently has gotten a lot of attention as being, you know, potentially one of his top three, maybe even his best film. Uh, I would not agree with that. <laughs> Definitely not. But um, do you feel like there's a great distance between Zodiac at number one and Social Network at number two? Or is there a great distance between those top two and then seven at number three? I I wouldn't call it a great distance, but I think that there is a distance uh, between Social Network and seven. I, 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 think, I think that gap between Panic Room and Zodiac, I think he sort of like, he sort of uh, broke away from these more genre pictures and started to delve into more straight up dramas that dealt with, you know, more, more um, nuanced themes and, and more universal themes. And it wasn't necessarily just to thrill you or scare you or uh, anything like that. I, and, and so I, I, I definitely feel like between those two movies and seven, there is a, a, a much bigger gap. Yeah. So what is it about Zodiac then that kind of keeps it up at the top of the list? Is it, it's not purely just the rewatchability. Is it, is, is it something more than that? Yeah. I'm, well, I mean, First of all, I have always responded to uh, movies where it's just people in rooms talking and doing and doing their work. I and and like as a DP, that that probably sounds strange because it's it sometimes it can be deeply uncinematic. But I, I really do respond to like you know like all the President's Men, Twelve Angry Men, more recently like Moneyball. If you take away the baseball stuff or like. Um, you know, spotlight. I just really love movies where it's just people in rooms talking and it is just information, information, information. And if it's good, you don't have to have all of this, like, you know, visual bombast. It's just, just tell the story as simply as possible. And so I love these kind of movies and Zodiac, I think is like the ultimate, uh, you know, example of this sort of subgenre. This movie is just about how people give information, how people take information, how information can get uh, uh, jumbled over time and over the limitations of technology. There's an amazing scene in Zodiac. I think it's like maybe half hour into the movie where um, Armstrong, uh, who's played by Anthony Edwards, he's on the phone and he's trying to communicate between Vallejo jurisdiction and Napa. And like Napa's like, talk to Vallejo. Vallejo's like, talk to Napa. And it's like, it's a riveting 90 second sequence of just him on the phone intercut between these two jurisdictions and it's riveting and it's i actually think that's when i saw that the movie for the second time i think that's the moment when i realized what fincher was actually going for with this movie uh about information and communication and how these things can get just kind of like jumbled together and it's like i don't know how these uh these police officers can keep all this stuff you know together uh after they're just getting just hammered left and right by by all this info and one thing I love about the movie is that the movie never placates the audience. It never simplifies things for you so that you can keep up. It's always demanding your attention and always demanding that you actively try and keep up at all times. And I've never seen anything like that before. And I think it's it's truly incredible. 
hearing you talk about it, you're actually making me appreciate the, the movie even more. I just rewatched <laughs> it uh, for the podcast. And, you know, I've probably seen it close to 10 times now because, like I said, I'm always kind of eager to revisit it. Uh, but now's the time for our resident film historian, Trip Von Weeks, to fill us in on all things Zodiac, how the project came about, its production, its release, and its current pop culture footprint. Engineer Cody, I think we're all hooked. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, let's give him a call. I'm sure it'll pick up any second now. Hi, you've reached Trip Von Weeks. I don't Can't get to the uh, phone uh, right now, so please leave him. You know what? Just just cut it off. Um, sorry about that, Sean. Uh, let's let's just move on. Um, okay, Zodiac was released in 2007. It was directed by David Fincher and written by James Vanderbilt. It's about the detectives and journalists investigating the Zodiac murders in San Francisco in the 1960s and 70s, and it stars Jake Gyllenhaal, Mark Ruffalo, and Robert Downey Jr. Sean uh, Fincher once told the website FincherFanatic.com that he works hard to, quote, fight against whatever my brand is. If the brand is, it's going to be dark and grainy. I have no interest in that, end quote. Now, when you think about Zodiac in the context of Fincher's overall career, and I think you've maybe already suggested this, do you do you see it as a continuation of what he'd done up to that point or more of a departure? I, I definitely see it as a departure. I, I think that, um, you know, that, that, that gap between Panic Room and, and Zodiac, I don't know what happened, but it, suddenly he sort of um, drifted away from these uh, genre pictures, you know, like, you know, Panic Room is a straight up, you know, home invasion thriller, you know, uh, Seven is a straight up horror thriller, uh, serial killer movie. And uh, yeah, Zodiac, you know, I think, I think a lot of people branded Zodiac as just a straight up Fincher serial killer, at least at first, but it, to me, it's a, it's a procedural more, more than anything else. Um, that actually, in my opinion, has very little to do with the actual killer himself. And it's, it's more about obsession and information and how time just sort of drives you crazy, uh, with, with all of, with all of that. But yeah, I definitely think that he, he definitely strayed away from that brand that he had created, uh, in the, in the nineties and early two thousands. And, um, he really su- subverted, um, that brand starting with Zodiac. And I don't, I think since Zodiac, I don't think he's ever gone back to that sort of nineties, um, that nineties brand. Yeah. You mentioned the Irishman earlier. That's edited by Thelma Schoonmaker. She once said that she wished people would just let go of Goodfellas. She said that she and Scorsese joke that they, they should burn that movie because everyone's always trying to make them make it again. I feel like maybe in a similar way, Zodiac is Fincher very consciously frustrating our expectations of him. And, and I'm not suggesting that's why he made the movie. He did tell James Vanderbilt that he wasn't interested in repeating himself. Um, he obviously made one of the kind of defining serial killer movies of all time with seven, but there's no narrative gimmick to latch onto with Zodiac. There's, there's stylist stuff in it, but it mostly takes a very workmanlike approach. Uh, certainly more than we'd seen from Fincher up to that point. There's very little in it that you might call explicitly cutting edge. And then it offers no clear cut answers or resolution. And as unpleasant as they might've been in his earlier work, they were there, um, you know, there's nothing like that here. Uh, you know, maybe he's not saying burn seven or, or burn fight club, but having seen and read interviews with Fincher over the years, it's not hard to imagine him delighting and sticking it to people who think they might know his brand, even if that means a certain segment of his fans. And that's actually one of the reasons I was curious if you loved it immediately. Um, having now spent 16 years with it, is there anything that kind of specifically powers this movie for you? Is it, is it 
still driven by Fincher, the director, just maybe in different ways? Or is it more of a writer's movie or, or more of a performance driven movie for you? Or, you know, if you want to kind of attack it this way, if you could only kind of single out one thing for awards recognition, what would you go to for Zodiac? Oh, interesting. From an award standpoint, I think it was nominated for like zero Oscars, right? Yeah. No Oscar nominations. Um, which is, to me is absolutely insane. Um, if I had to choose one, I, I, I think that is first and foremost a script movie. I, I, I love that you barely see any Fincher in it. I don't know if that's fair to say, but, but you don't see as much Fincher as you would in, in, in his previous works. I love how bare bones the script is. Um, and I've, I've actually read the script and it is, I, I think it's like 209 pages long or something like that. It is, it is incredibly dense, but it's all just people talking. And yeah, I would, I would consider it a script movie first. And from an award standpoint, I think, I, I mean, I, w- I would have nominated for so many things. I, I would have given Fincher a nomination, script, picture, Downey Jr., uh, visual effects, so many things, so many things. Yeah, I thought about the question myself as I was rewatching it, and I I agree. I think it's it's maybe more of a writer's movie. Uh, you do have to like consider like how was it a writer's movie because it's not dialogue. There's a lot of people talking, but it's not dialogue driven the way like the Social Network is. The dialogue in Zodiac is is mostly pretty utilitarian, and like Seven has more literate dialogue than Zodiac does. But you're right. You do kind of marvel at the construction and the way Zodiac relays information. It's it's all about information, like you said. My two favorite scenes in the movie are both just scenes of people laying all the information out that they know. <laughs> One is Mark Ruffalo and Anthony Edwards. It's when they're with Dermot Mulroney, and they're making the case for a search warrant. And that's a scene that was actually I – di- I just learned this recently. That was a s- scene that was actually cut from the theatrical version but was restored in the director's cut. And then the other uh, comes at the very end of the movie when Jake Gyllenhaal is presenting his findings to Ruffalo in the diner. And those two scenes to me are so satisfying, but their pleasure for me is kind of predicated on every scene that has led up to them. Getting all that information onto the page in a way that even resembles a movie is noteworthy. The fact that it's riveting, like just the, just the way the facts are presented in this movie is riveting, is kind of monumental. And I always look forward to those two scenes in particular. Um, you know, usually when I rewatch a movie, it's to experience kind of the whole thing again. But for Zodiac, I feel like I'm watching it just to get to those two scenes. Oh, interesting. And the concluding exchange between Hall and Ruffalo in that diner scene are kind of what make the movie for me. This is a case that's covered both Northern and Southern California with victims and suspects spread over hundreds of miles. Would you agree? Yes. Darlene Farron worked at the Vallejo House of Pancakes on the corner of Tennessee and Carroll. Arthur Lee Allen lived in his mother's basement on Fresno Street. Door to door, that is less than 50 yards. Is that true? I've walked it. Are there moments or scenes like that for you in Zodiac? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I would definitely agree with you uh, about oh, about both of them, but particularly that last scene that, that um, with uh, Ruffalo and, and Gyllenhaal. But I think what makes that so satisfying is that the characters in the movie and the people in real life went through 10 years of this. Like, this was a grueling 10 years of just constant police work, constant investigation, and they must have been just so over it by the time, like, you know, it sort of just went away. But much like what they're going through in the movie, the actual movie itself is a marathon. Like it's, it's kind of hard, it, like despite how rewatchable I think it is, 
it's a marathon to get through it. And I think what makes that that end scene with with Gyllenhaal so satisfying is the fact that you you have gone through this massive movie. It's just two and a half hours of just people talking at you. And finally, you have a little bit of closure, at least what Gyllenhaal thinks is closure. And it, it is really satisfying. It's like you finally get that that breath of fresh air after just two and a half hours of like just constant barrage of information of just people talking at you. And yeah, it just makes it so satisfying. But another scene that I really love is, is one that I've already mentioned. It's the scene where Anthony Edwards is on the phone with trying to communicate between two different jurisdictions. And you're just as frustrated as he is by the end of the scene because he gets nothing out of it. And you're just watching this guy just fail at communicating things and getting information from people for like 90 seconds. And you don't, you don't have any more clarity than you did two, two minutes before. Like it's not, it's not a movie that constantly needs to be pushing you, the audience to more clarity. Like there's no revelations. There, there's no anything. It's just, here's some information. Let's follow this information. Oh, that didn't work. Let's go back to the drawing board. And you see them investigate and fail so much during the movie that, yeah, by the end, when you're with Gyllenhaal and he thinks that he has it figured out, it's so riveting and it's so satisfying because you've ran this marathon with them for the past two and a half hours. It's so good. Yeah. His line reading, door to door, I've walked it. It's so good. It's the I've walked it. It's the I've walked it. It's so good. So That's good. become one of my like... um I'll often point to that, that moment, just be like, the movie needs something like this. Like, it's such an abstract way to think about the needs of a scene, but I'll, you know, I'll often point to that scene when I'm giving, you know, notes or or working on something myself. And I'll be like, yeah, you know, that it needs that moment from Zodiac, uh, which (laughs) was like, good luck with that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Back in 1997, when the game was coming out, Fincher told American cinematographer that there are two extremes of filmmaking. The first, uh, he said was the Kubrick way where you're at the end of an alley in which four guys are beating someone up. And he says, hopefully the audience will know that such a scenario is morally wrong, even though it's not presented as if the viewer is the one being beaten up. And then he says, inversely, there's the Spielberg way where you're dropped into the middle of the action and you're going to live the experience vicariously, not only through what's happening, but through the emotional flow of what people are saying. And he calls the Spielberg way a much more involved style. Um, He says he's attracted to both styles at different times, but mostly tries to remain semi-detached. He thinks his approach comes from a more voyeuristic place. As a filmmaker yourself, do you tend to align more with the Kubrick way, as Fincher describes it, or the Spielberg way in how you think about shooting scenes? That's interesting. Um, I don't necessarily agree that there's just two ways generally and i think it comes from my love of these kind of movies where it's it's uh it's just a lot of people in rooms talking um whenever i read a good script that i want to be a part of my first instinct is usually to just take a step back and let the story sort of tell itself um my first instinct is never like how can we make this more cinematic how can we you know, heighten this moment here, or it's, it's literally just, how can I stay out of the way? How can I stay out of the story's way and just give it the, uh, the the respect that the story deserves? Um, I just want to, I just want the camera to be in the right place at the right time and tell the story, the story as simply as possible. Now that obviously changes during prep, during talks with directors, uh, things like that. Um, but yeah, usually my first instinct is the, I guess, the Kubrick way is to sort of uh, cinematically tell the story 
uh, as simply as possible. And sometimes that aligns with with certain directors and sometimes that doesn't. And my job as the DP is to sort of adapt to to, to whatever style that the, the director is, is looking for. Do you agree with Fincher's own assessment of his approach? Because when I watch his movies, I think the dramatic contours of his movies are actually much more like Spielberg's than Kubrick's, even though I don't think he and Spielberg have similar temperaments at all. I actually think Fincher's style is also very involved. I, I wouldn't describe his work as voyeuristic, though he, you know he's probably indifferent to his character's fates in a way that's maybe similar to Kubrick. Um, you know, some filmmakers say you have to love your characters to be a good director. I'm not sure Fincher would agree with that, but do you agree with his self-analysis? I, I agree with you. I don't necessarily see him as necessarily a voyeur. I think the way that he shoots his movies, regardless of what phase of his career he's in, I think is very involved, but, but somehow it's still not Spielbergian. I mean, you know, he uses score in a much different way. Um, you know, lens choices, uh, I, I think are, are much different than Spielbergian and, but somehow it's not Kubrickian either. But I think David Fincher makes these stories that in, that that really involve the audience and, and get the audience involved emotionally. I think it's mostly through editing, and I think it's mostly through score. And I yeah, I wouldn't consider it voyeur, voyeuristic at all. I, I think it's a very um, specific uh, point of view. It's very subjective. Um, I don't necessarily think that that Zodiac by any means is is very subjective, but um, but I do think that that yeah, all of his movies are very captivating. Um, and, and not so much looking from the outside in, but really kind of crafting scenes and working emotions from the inside out. All right, Sean, let's get to it. What's the worst part of Zodiac? Okay. The worst part of Zodiac, and I, I, I need to make sure that I get like the, the, the story straight because I, um, unfortunately didn't see it, uh, before the pod, but basically it's Jake Gyllenhaal's character. So Gray Smith, is following up on an anonymous tip that the Zodiac is this guy named Rick Marshall. And Rick Marshall used to work at this uh, movie theater that did handwritten posters. And so he's trying to track down these handwritten posters to get Rick Marshall's handwriting. And then he calls this guy Vaughn, who works at the, um, who used to be, a, who was a coworker of Rick Marshall's. And basically he meets this guy Vaughn outside the theater uh, to try and get more movie posters. And this guy Vaughn, he pulls up, it's raining. He pulls up and he's like, he's like cloaked in shadow. Jake Gyllenhaal's like, you know, let's go to this coffee shop down the street. We can talk more. And he's like, no, why don't you just come to my house? And, and we could talk there. And Jake Gyllenhaal's like, okay, cool. And so they go to this guy Vaughn's house and they, they discuss the handwriting on the posters. And Vaughn says, no, Rick Marshall didn't do those posters. I hand wrote those myself. And of course, like Jake Gyllenhaal's like, oh shit, this guy might be the Zodiac. And from that moment until the end of the scene, Vaughn takes Jake Gyllenhaal down into the basement to show him more handwriting samples. And Jake Gyllenhaal's freaked out, but he still goes down. And then he gets freaked out to the point where, you know, he just has to get out of there and he bolts and the door's locked. And the guy like, there's like a jump scare. The guy like, you know, scares him to like unlock the door. And so that that whole kind of sequence it's just a couple scenes but that sequence is my least favorite part of the movie i still think it's fine but it's my least favorite part because i think it 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 is a departure from the way that the rest of the movie is essentially made like for a movie that prides itself on conveying information in a natural and truthful and sort of uncinematic way this is the this is the first and only time in the movie where I feel like 
David Fincher, Harris Avidis, and even the script are actively trying to manipulate the audience. And I feel like the rest of the movie does not do that and actually prides itself on not doing that. And this is the only scene where it, it suddenly felt like they, they came to the, like, the, the climax of the movie and they were like, oh man, we need a scary scene here. Otherwise, like, what are we doing? And so it, it, it feels very forced. And again, it, it just feels like it's the only time where it feels like through the cinema language of lighting and camera moves and things like that, it's the only time that we, that, that it feels like they're trying to manipulate us. And I could be wrong, but I think it's the only time that there is a, a dolly move that is emotionally, uh, th- that is done on, on an emotional level and not just a practical motivation of like, oh, we, got, we have to like follow somebody. I think it's the only time that there's a move that is motivated by emotion. And it's on, it's on Jake when he's down in the basement and he hears noises upstairs. And by the way, those are never explained. He just hears noises for no reason whatsoever, just to try and make the scene scarier. Yeah, he thinks they're footsteps. Yeah, he thinks that he hears footsteps, yeah. And it's difficult because, according to Graysmith, that all actually happened. That's all real. Like, nothing in the movie, there, there are portions of things that are, like, a little a little different. But, like, the movie also prides itself on on, on everything being real. And this, and this this actually did happen, according to Graysmith. Um, so I'm a little torn about the fact that I don't like it because it, it is truthful because it, it actually did happen. But I think because of the way that it's shot, the way that it's edited and also the way that that guy Vaughn, the way in which Fincher directs him, it's a complete manipulation of, of the scene and the audience's emotions. And that's the scene that I dislike. Yeah. Fincher says on the commentary track that it it was one of those scenes at test screenings that some people thought was the best scene in the movie and, and some thought it was the worst scene in the movie. So you have, you know, people definitely on your side. I have mixed feelings about it as well. I think it has a good build to it. Um, We talked earlier about the Kubrick way and the Spielberg way. I think this scene is an example of Fincher going the Spielberg way for sure. Yep. Uh, I do think it's creepy. I never watch it and feel, you know, cheated. Even if I do recognize it's just a big red herring. I I agree. I wonder if it would be better if uh, Charles Fleischer, that's the actor who plays Vaughn. He was also the voice of Roger Rabbit, by the way. But I wonder (laughs) if... um, Charles Fleischer, if he had played it in a way that was harder for us to get a read on the guy, because, you know, if it was more like, uh, is this guy really as sinister as the details portray him or is Graysmith just paranoid? Because as it is, he's 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 either messing with Graysmith, which why go to all that trouble, or he's definitely the Zodiac killer yeah. because he like he plays it like he's the killer way more than John Carroll Lynch ever plays it that way. But it all just proves to be a dead end in the grand scheme of things. So everything about the sequence, the rain, the reveal about the handwriting, the basement, the weird footsteps above, it all just seems to be overemphasized for no reason. And I wouldn't fight you on wanting to see it removed or rethought. Um, You know, I do think it's effectively creepy just to no end. Would the better version of that just be, you know, keep it in the movie, but do it less stylishly, uh, more more in keeping with the, is, is that the version of the scene that would work better for you? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't get rid of it altogether because, again, it's like it's something that really happened. It's an integral part of 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 the case of of Graysmith's investigation on his own. Um, and 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 I do I do like the fact that there is a little bit of a of a heightened sense of 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 what's going on. And I think I I like the fact that it puts Graysmith in a in a sense of real danger. But yeah, every everything you said about like if you pull back Fleischer's performance a bit, make it a little bit more ambiguous. And and then and then have have Jake sort of uh, react accordingly. 
I, I think that that makes the scene a lot better. I, I definitely think it's needed. And, and again, to your point, like this guy's either messing with, with Jake Gyllenhaal or he is 100, like he is 100% the killer. Like what there, there's no reason to act the way he, that he's acting in that scene if he's innocent. But again, to, to, to what you were saying earlier, where it, it is a creepy scene and it is an effective scene, like on its own, it's actually a really great scene. It just belongs in a different movie. It does not belong in Zodiac at all. So my worst part, and I feel kind of weird about it because it's a writing thing. And I, you know, just said the screenplay is worth marveling over. And it still is for, you know, all the reasons we talked about earlier. It's so good when it's an information driven procedural, you know, when we're just like mainlining evidence. But I think the shortcomings of the script are maybe the ways it also pays lip service to its interpersonal relationships. None of this is ruinous in any way. Uh, the, the actors are all very good. But this is not a movie about the characters' relationships to other people. It's about the characters' relationships to information. And you know, I also rewatched Seven to to talk to you about Zodiac. And, and Seven is actually my favorite Fincher film. Uh, and there are a number of strong relationship scenes in that movie between Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman, between Pitt and Gwyneth Paltrow, between Freeman and Paltrow. And I honestly don't think Fincher is very interested in relationships in general. I think he's great at presentation. But if the relationships aren't articulated and pronounced in the script already, I don't think he's going to go out of his way to supply them or accentuate them in any way. He's not an emotion-based director in that kind of way. And I think a movie like Benjamin Button or Mank, you know, probably suffers because of that, whereas a movie like Seven and, to a lesser extent, Social Network still still make an impact in those areas because they're so well-drawn and made so vital to those, um, you know, the relationships are so vital in those scripts. Um, but there's so little of it in Zodiac that it contributes next to nothing when it does kind of pay lip service to it. And so you have good performers like June Diane Raphael as Toski's wife and, and Chloe Savini as Grace Smith's wife. And James Vanderbilt even mentions uh, on the commentary that, that those are thankless parts elevated by the performers, which is completely true. But those moments to me often feel like we're just kind of going through the motions of being a movie. And, you know, you could certainly say, I suppose, you know, yeah, that's the point. They're, they're of secondary importance. But I feel like Zodiac really only goes halfway toward dramatizing that idea. And so all of that is, is really just the setup for what I'm about to say. This is how I think uh, Zodiac's handling of the interpersonal relationships plays out most egregiously. There's a recurring thing that happens with Mark Ruffalo's character, Dave Toski, and I imagine it's a real life detail because why else would it be in this movie? But there's this business with Toski and animal crackers. So early in the movie, Toski picks up his partner, played by Anthony Edwards. They're going to a murder scene. Edwards gets in the car and hands Ruffalo a box of animal crackers. And, you know, it's clearly part of their routine. It's a, it's a character quirk of Ruffalo's. It, you know, is supposed to say something about them and their partnership and relationship and how well they know each other. Okay, fine enough. But, then they do their work at the crime scene, and the scene ends with Ruffalo asking out loud to other cops, does anybody have any animal crackers? <laughs> and Edward says, they're in the car, and Ruffalo says, I was saving those for later. Okay, so it just it just got a little more odd, and now it's a thing, apparently. A little later in time, in, you know, in the movie, Edwards is driving them around now. And the scene just starts with Ruffalo looking around the car for something, and then he asks Edwards, animal crackers? And Edwards says, glove box. And so Ruffalo opens the glove box and starts eating animal crackers. And there's still one more coming. Rule of threes, right? <laughs> so this is years later in the movie, well after Edwards has requested and received a transfer 
we see Ruffalo with his new partner, and he asks him, do you happen to have any animal crackers? Okay, so I know what it's supposed to be doing. I know why it's there. It's supposed to point to a loss, but it just doesn't play at all. It just sits there. It's very clumsy. I've seen Fincher on behind-the-scenes features haggle with Aaron Sorkin over starting a line of dialogue with the word also. Also, I'm breaking up with you is the line from Social Network. I just can't imagine this Animal Cracker stuff passing muster. Why would a grown man say that? Does, <laughs> does he really expect people other than his old partner to have Animal Crackers for him? Like, that's the behavior of a child who calls his teacher mommy. That's like Ralph Wiggum stuff. It makes no <laughs> realistic sense. That line exists solely for the audience to go, oh, right, remember with the old partner. It's not something Toski would ever say in that moment. So I would just say, take out every reference to animal crackers in the script because they just <laughs> don't play the way the movie wants it to play. It's, it's not a compelling quirk. Whatever color it brings to Toski's character is completely inconsequential. Uh, and it's not telling about his relationship to his partner as the movie, I think, needs it to be. So that's what I'm going with as the single worst part. Broadly, the interpersonal relationships fall short, but very specifically how that plays into Toski's business with the animal crackers. So I know I just said a whole lot there, Sean. What do you think about any or all of that? I, 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 don't, I don't necessarily disagree with you. I, I, I think that those, uh, the animal crackers especially, don't play as well. And, and a lot of the interpersonal relationships in the movie are really kind of thrown to the, to the, to the wayside, whether it's intentional or not. So I, I, yes, I, I dislike the animal crackers. But having done a little bit of, of research after a, a couple screenings of the movie, Toski was the kind of guy, from, from what I can gather, who always seemed like he was sort of like playing cop. And, and, uh, I'm, I'm not defending this at all because the animal crackers are not good. But Toski was always the kind of guy that always felt like he had read how to be a cop in a book or seen it in a movie. I mean, he was like the tech advisor on like Bullet and stuff. So like he has this heightened version of what a cop is, you know, and I feel like he's intentionally having these quirks to, to, to sort of have this heightened version version of himself as a police investigator. That's the only thing I can think of as to why that's in there. Because I don't even think it's supposed to necessarily, I don't even see it as like a, a cute interpersonal thing between he and Anthony Edwards. I think it's more about Toski as a, as, a, as a person. This is just his quirk. And I think like the last time that he asked, he asked the new partner about the animal crackers, I always see it as him kind of testing the waters of like, am I going gonna to get along with this guy? And he's obviously not. And again, I'm not defending it because it's bad, but like looking into like who Toski was in real life, it makes a little bit more sense to me uh, as, as somebody who's sort of playing cop. But yeah, no, I, I totally agree. It's, it's not great, uh, but it's certainly not my least favorite part of the movie. And, and going to, into the interpersonal relationships, I think the wives definitely do suffer. And, you know, uh, the woman who plays Toski's wife um, especially has almost zero screen time and not a whole lot to do. I, I think that the script doesn't necessarily want you to, to grab onto a lot of these interpersonal relationships. Um, however, I do think that the, the, the relationship between Gray Smith and Paul Avery is, I think it's best. And I think it's strongest. Like that scene where um, Gray Smith comes to see Avery on the boat and Avery's kind of like hit rock bottom is very affecting. Um, and I, and I really do love that scene and I hate seeing Paul Avery that way, but where I do think, yeah, do, where I do think the movie suffers is the, is the, um, the marriage between Gray Smith and, and, um, the, I forget the, the wife's name, but played by Chloe Sevigny. Um, it feels incredibly cliche. We've all seen movies where an obsession leads to a, uh, the, 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 um, breakup of marriage. 
a divorce. And um, that feels very sort of contrived and not, not terribly interesting. And we can all see it coming from a mile away. But I feel like the other, the other relationships in the movie, I don't think the script is like really asking you to like grab hold of it that much. I don't think it's asking that much from the audience. I think it's those main two uh, relationships. One succeeds and the other one doesn't. All right, that sound can only mean one thing. It's time to step into the Worst Part Podcast time machine. I'm setting the coordinates for my hometown of Charlotte, North Carolina. The date, Friday, March 2nd, 2007, which is when Zodiac opened. Sean, we're going to the Phillips Place Cinema to see Zodiac, but when we get to the box office, we're told that, unfortunately, the movie is sold out. So, now we have to choose to see another title that's playing at the theater, and our options on that day are Black Snake Moan, Wild Hogs, the Astronaut Farmer, the number 23, Reno 911 Miami, Breach, Bridge to Terabithia, Ghost Rider, Music and Lyrics, Happy Feet. So with those choices, what do you do? What do you do? Jonathan, that is bleak. Uh, I have no idea. It, that's, that's an incredibly difficult decision um, because I've never seen it and because I it feels like a movie that I talk about a lot, like the movies that they don't really make anymore, like these kind of adult driven, like kind of thrillers or something. Maybe I would see breach. I kind of like Billy Ray. I, I, I think he's talented. And just cause I've never seen it before, I would probably go back knowing how much I kind of miss those kind of movies. I think that I would go back and see that. Yeah. I've only seen two of those, the number 23 and Reno 911. <laughs> uh, not a great lineup of movies. If you ask me, um, I I'm, I'm shocked that we're not nostalgic for March of 2007. <laughs> um, for me, it would be between black snake moan because I liked hustle and flow and just never got around to seeing Craig Brewer's follow up, uh, happy feet, just another step toward, you know, being a George Miller completist. Uh, but I'm also going to go with Breach uh, for the same reasons. Billy Ray, you know, that might be a solid and smart movie because of that. Uh, so that's where I'm going to put my money as well. Um, but boy, that was not a satisfying trip in a time machine. So, Sean, this is my podcast. I can do whatever I want. Diller's Choice, name any other Fincher movie. We'll hop back into the Worst Part Podcast time machine and have ourselves a bonus round. Oh, cool. Um, I got to go back to seven. What is that, 95? 95. Yeah, I got to go back to seven. So I'm going to set the coordinates for Friday, September 22nd, 1995. We're going to go to the Arboretum 10 Theater. Sean, this is the exact theater where you and I saw Don't Worry Darling last year. Uh, (laughs) And then it closed two weeks later. But seven is sold out, unfortunately. So these are our choices. Tu Wong Fu, thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. Angus, Unstrung Heroes. The Usual Suspects, Babe, Dangerous Minds, The Amazing Panda Adventure, Last of the Dogmen, Something to Talk About, Braveheart, or Hackers. So with those choices, what do you do? What do you do? Wow, that is the complete opposite of, uh, of March 2007. Um, so many good choices. Wow. Uh, that's really difficult. I, I was taken aback by, by Braveheart because I forgot that that was 95. Man, I, I actually... It's funny, the movie that I've revisited out of that entire list the most is Hackers. <laughs> it's like, it's such a guilty pleasure for me. Um, I got to go with either Usual Suspects or Braveheart. And just for the pure cinematic experience, I got to do Braveheart. I got to go with it. Yeah, I would probably, it'd probably be between The Usual Suspects or Babe for me. I would probably go with 
the usual suspects, though. I'm a big fan of Bay Pig in the City, so had it been Bay Pig in the City, I would have definitely done that. Uh, usual suspects, despite its um, cavalcade of disgraced personnel, um, <laughs> I think it's still a, a very good movie. Uh, I rewatched it not too long ago, and there were there were some little quiet moments that um, really resonated with me. I, you know, I'm kind of over the the Kaiser Soze stuff, and I actually think Kevin Spacey sticks to his like "Who me? I'm just a baby" shtick a little too much. Um, but I still think it's a well-constructed movie, very well-directed, um, despite those involved. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, even, yeah, even if you take away the twist, it's still a really, really good movie. I I think that's, that's very telling for a really good, um, a really good movie, kind of like the sixth sense where even if you take away that, that, that twist, it's still, still really compelling. Yeah. I I like usual suspects a lot. All right, so there you have it. Thank you for being on the show, Sean. Do you have anything coming up this year that you want us to know about? Uh, well, last year I shot two features, um, one for Miramax, one for uh, Searchlight. Uh, the, Mir- the Miramax movie um, is called Old Dads, and it is the uh, directorial debut of uh, Bill Burr. Uh, and then the Searchlight movie is called The Supremes at Earl's All You Can Eat, um, which is based on a book uh, bestseller that came out about uh, 10 years ago. It's about a, a group of friends uh, over, you know, 30 years. Um, and, uh, hopefully both will be coming out in, uh, 2023. Have you begun your post work on either of those? Uh, yeah. So I've, I've, I've done the, uh, the color work on, uh, old dads. I think they're still doing some audience testing right now. Um, but hopefully that comes out soon. And then, um, we just finished, uh, the Supremes, uh, around Thanksgiving. So they're still in the, the director's cut phase. Um, uh, the director, Tina Mabry, who's wonderful, I think she got a, a really good amount of time for uh, for a director's cut, which I think says a, a lot about Searchlight and how they allow directors to kind of finesse. Um, so it's really good. Yeah, great. Yeah, and uh, Gina Prince Bythewood co-wrote that, uh, and Whitney Ann Adams, who was just on the podcast talking about Scream, did the costume. So lots of reasons to look forward to that one. That's right. Everyone out there can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We are Worst Part Pod. Our theme song was written by my brother Jason Foster. That's our show for today. On behalf of my co-host, Trip on Weeks, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>